But I want to invite to the stage a friend of mine. He's been a pastor here in Northwest Houston, but a student pastor and a pastor for uh, 10, over 10 years. And he's getting ready to start planting a church. And so they've been attending Life for a little bit. And so I had asked him a number of weeks ago if he would be open to, to sharing and preaching on Sunday morning. I'm hoping the message is gonna be good. Just kidding, I'm confident it's gonna be a great message. And like I tell every one of our communicators the very first time, Wes, please don't screw this up, all right? Listen, will you please give a big Life welcome to Wes Jackson. Man, don't screw this up. Fortunately, I think that's subjective. So uh, even if I do, I can disagree that I didn't. Uh, man, thanks for uh, welcoming us here. Thanks for letting me be here. I, I'm incredibly grateful for SciLife. I'm grateful for the work that you do, for the impact that you're making in the community around us. Um, I know a lot of people who have been plugged in here for a long time and uh, a lot of friends. And I will even say just personally for me and my family over the last several months, uh, back in the summer, I started kind of making some transitions in, in my life and in ministry, and you heard Bob share a little bit of that. But for the very first time ever, my family and I decided to get in the car together on a Sunday and come to church together, uh, because we'd literally never done that before. Um, as a pastor, that's a difficult thing that doesn't happen very often. And uh, the first place we decided to show up at was Sci Life. And I'll just tell you, I was a little bit anxious and nervous about uh, showing up to a place that was unfamiliar, and you all quickly made it a place that was comfortable, welcoming, friendly, people smiling. There is something special about Sci Life, and I, I have felt that. Uh, my family has felt that, and so we're thankful for it. I'm also thankful for Bob for his friendship and a little bit of time that we've got to know each other. I know that he cares deeply for you. Um, I know he cares deeply for the message of Jesus going to the world, and I will always be grateful for that and thankful for the opportunity to to just get to share with you a little bit this morning uh, some of what God has taught me over the years, but even this week, some things that, in a story that's familiar, he has made new in my mind. And I'll set up this. When I was in high school, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church, went to a lot of church things, specifically camps in the summer. And one of, the, one of those years, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year of high school, a friend of mine named Pete decided to go to church camp with us. And while we were there, he decided that he was uh, ready to trust Jesus with his life and uh, allow Jesus to be his Lord and his Savior. And man, he was on fire for Jesus, literally. And the reason I say literally is because then we got home. And the first day after being back from church camp, we were hanging out with some friends. And there was another friend of ours named Corby. And he went up to Corby behind him while Corby is in a conversation. He took a cigarette lighter and he put it up behind his ear. And of course, burned Corby, singed a little bit of his hair, and Corby turned around with a not-so-polite gesture and out of frustration said, man, what's wrong with you? And he says, you think that's hot? Hell's a lot hotter. Let me tell you about Jesus. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you, that, that didn't end the way maybe you would hope that it would end. It wasn't a, oh, yes, please do. But I think there's a tendency as Christians to sometimes try to scare people into trusting Jesus so that uh, we spend an eternity in heaven. And that's something that is important, spending eternity in heaven and having our eternal security uh, locked up with the relationship with Jesus is important, but I don't think it's the only thing. And sometimes we can get super hyper-focused on people making that decision 
And so we do all these crazy things and come up with all these crazy plans and sometimes even stand on street corners with uh, angry voices and a megaphone and signs saying, turn or burn, get saved or get microwaved. And I just don't know that that's really what it looks like to live the life God's called us to live. But even more importantly for us personally today, I want us to consider that for ourselves because I think there's a lot more to a relationship with Christ than simply making a decision and praying a prayer at some point. Because there's times in our lives where maybe things are going well, and all of a sudden, you've always believed that God was a healer until it's you that needed the healing. Or you've always said God was the provider, but it's different when you're the one that needs the provision in your life. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me until I have no strength. And all of a sudden, it's like, hang on a second. This is shaking me up. I know where my eternal destination is going to be, but what, is, what difference does that make in my life today? Because life is difficult, it's complicated, it's messy, and we find ourselves in a place where life is going really well sometimes, but then we fall on our face, and it's really difficult to get back up. And I'm talking about more than just a bad day. Amen. I'm talking about the marriage that maybe has been dysfunctional for years, and you've maybe finally landed in a place where you said, man, there's just no hope for this. The family that I've always dreamed of is just not going to happen for me. This is just the way that it is. Or maybe your self-esteem, your self-worth has been shattered because you were denied the role that you wanted at work or you were not um, invited to participate on the team that you've always wanted to participate on or you didn't get the, the promotion or the job or the opportunity that you thought was just right for you. Or maybe there's been heartbreak. There's been a breakup of a relationship that you thought was gonna be the one, and so now you're carrying around some bitterness. You're hearing things that maybe are being said about you that you know aren't true, but you're not sure everybody else believes to be untrue. You've lost someone close to you, and the closer that person is to you, the, the deeper and the more difficult the grief can be. Maybe it's a chronic illness. Maybe it's a financial situation that just seems like there's no way this is gonna turn around. What do we do in those moments? Because I think it's in those moments that we're not considering the prayer that maybe we prayed about one day to trust Jesus. We need something in that day to happen. And so to better understand that and to better unpack that, I want us to consider what would it look like to, to get back on your feet. When you've been down, and maybe you've been down for a really, really long time, what would it look like to take some steps to get back on your feet? I think there's three steps. And I'll share them now, and we'll unpack them, and you'll have, you'll have time to write these down, but I think we've got to silence the lies, we've got to eliminate the excuses, and we've got to take the difficult steps. I think we begin to experience something so that we're able to actually get back on our feet and begin to take a step. Even if there's two steps backwards after that, we can still continue to take another step forward. And so I want us to look at John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. A story where Jesus does something fascinating. It starts off and it says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's a festival about to happen. There's food involved. I mean, this is like Thanksgiving dinner on steroids. And Jesus, along with a lot of the Jews, are going to celebrate God's goodness. They're going to celebrate God's provision in their life. They're going to celebrate who he is, the healing that he's done, the life that he's allowed them to have. Their, their celebration is proof of a relationship with their Heavenly Father. And so they're going to celebrate this. 
And as they're walking by, look what it says in verse 2. It says, now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porticos. In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, limping, or paralyzed. So we've got two groups. We've got one group that is walking by on their way to celebrate the goodness of God, to enjoy this festival with dancing and with food and uh, music and laughter and conversation and being together. And in close proximity of this celebration that they're going to is another group of people who are stuck. Many who have been stuck for a really, really long time, unable to contribute to the celebration, unable to contribute to society. These are... These are really difficult situations, difficult circumstances, but I think it's important for us to see that there's really nothing to celebrate about being near the pool of Bethesda. While others are celebrating and having awareness of others' celebration, here they are with nothing to celebrate, wondering, is God, is God good? Does God care about me? Is God's love for me? Have I done something that maybe is preventing me from experiencing all that God is and all that God wants to be in my life? What is it, what is it about me that's not right? I think before we go any further, I think it's important that we try to connect ourselves to the story because I think that maybe we're sitting in a room today or maybe watching online and There might not be something physically going on in your life that people would recognize, but there is something going on, and you feel that disconnect. Maybe even just a few moments ago when people are singing out and we're talking about breakthrough and we're talking about awakening um, our lives and awakening the city to who God is and who God wants to be for every single one of us, and there's joy, there's excitement, there's emotion. The emotion you feel is disappointment. And you're not here because your affection for God is so strong. You're here because there's more of an obligation to the routine that maybe you've always been in or there's a a superstition, a a transactional mindset that if I do this, then maybe God will do this. And so we find ourselves in this place where we feel that disconnect. We watch other people celebrate, but maybe you're here today unable to celebrate. Like that's real. And I know that's real because I've experienced that in my own life. I mean, we all have, and and I'll tell you this, find courage in this and find um, encouragement that you're not sitting in a room of people who have never felt what you might be feeling right now. Every single one of us have, every single one of us might be, and every single one of us will at some point be where you may be sitting right now. And so this story is for every single one of us. In the story, it goes on in verse 5, and you've got this multitude of people sitting around. In verse 5, it says, Now a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Now, I think it's important for us to understand, because you don't get this by just simply reading this passage, but if you dig into the religious customs and traditions of these days with the Jews, these festivals and these celebrations were something that happened frequently. Seven times a year, they would get together and they would celebrate something when it comes to the goodness of God and who he is and who he was for their lives. And so for 38 years, seven times a year, these people, specifically this man, had to listen to the celebration, unable to participate in it. That's a long time. 38 years is a long, long time. 38 years ago, I was four. Ronald Reagan was president. Thomas the Tank Engine made his debut. I don't know if you have any Thomas the Tank Engine fans in the house. I know my boys used to be. 38 years ago, God blessed the world 
with the minivan. I mean, let's just celebrate God's goodness in that. A lot has happened in 38 years. This man has been sitting for 38 years. No vacation for 38 years. No birthdays to celebrate for 38 years. He's been sitting at this pool for an incredibly long time. It says that he was ill. He was unable to contribute to society. In verse 6, it says, Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there and knowing that he had already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, do you want to get well? I think it might be important if you have your Bible or you're keeping up in your notes to, to circle that want to, underline want to. Jesus asks him this question. And consider this. Think about this. Out of the multitudes of people, out of this entire crowd of people hanging out around this pool of Bethesda and all these different porticos and all the different ailments that are being represented, Jesus sees this man. And he goes to this man and has a conversation with him. I think it's important for us to see that today because it shows that Jesus isn't just concerned with people, he's concerned with the person. He's, con he's concerned with us, but even more than us, he's concerned with you. He's concerned with me because he's, 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 he's connected in that kind of way. His love is for you. His compassion is for you. His gaze is on you. Just like it was on this man, he focuses in on this person. He sees him with love. And if you, maybe you're new to faith, you're new to following Jesus, I would just encourage you to go back and read the entire book of John sometime in the next week or two and just, just recognize the, the, the way that Jesus interacts with people, all people, not just people that think like he thinks or live like he lives, every single person he encounters. He often encounters them with love and compassion and grace and care. He wants to know them. He's for them more than he's even for himself. And I think we can find some strength in understanding that he sees you today. And out of the seven billion plus people in the world today, the multitude of people, you're here today hearing a message where Jesus goes and he finds the one. And he has an encounter with the one. He wants to have an encounter with us today. He wants to have an encounter with you. And maybe you're in that place. And the question for you today is simply this. Do you want to get well? It's an important question. And I realized this, I was thinking through this passage this week. My wife and I and our boys were on our way to our in-laws in East Texas and driving down the road, and I'm just kind of letting this message marinate in my mind, thinking through the passage. And I don't know that I've ever really considered this specific moment. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say to him, man, do you want to walk? He doesn't say to him, do you want to see? Do you want to hear? Do you want that body part to function the way it's supposed to function? He says, do you want to get well? So this, this is a man who, who probably wasn't paralyzed because it just talked about be people being paralyzed. It said sick and blind and limping and paralyzed, but he doesn't say, do you want to not be paralyzed? He says, do you want to be well? And I had this thought as I was driving down the road, I can see the scene around the car as we were going because it came to my mind, I started thinking, what if this wasn't about a physical ailment. What if this was about something going on that wasn't visible to everybody around him, but it was more in his mindset, and Jesus looks at me and says, do you want to? Because the obvious answer to the question is, yes, I want to be well. But do you want to get well? Do you want to take the step? Do you want to do what might be necessary in order for you to be well? I think this man's want to might have been broken. And so Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, do you desire to be well? There's a choice to make, and I think that we can all connect with this in some way, but I think what's going on in the story is that this man wants to be well, but he's taking the wrong approach. And I think we see that exposed in this, 
Next verse, in verse seven, it says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. You see, this, this, this verse unpacks for us and exposes what this man considers to be his hope for a better future. It's the water. If the water is stirred and he could just get into the water, if he could just, if he could just cannonball into the water, then, then his life would change. Then things would begin to look up, that he would be able to get back up on his feet. He's looking at this and his healing is dependent on falling in the water. You see this. He begins to unpack that and, and share that in this brief phrase. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, and, and I, I won't claim to be the smartest person in the room. I did not wear a bicycle helmet as a child, so I might have fallen and hit my head a couple times. But if you're reading this passage or you're following, following along in your notes, I'm not sure if it, you're, you're going to see this, but in a lot of translations of the Bible, you read through and you get to verse 3, and then it skips verse 4 and goes to verse 5. Why is that? Well, let me, let me read to you what the Amplified Version translates as verse 4 and then help us to understand this. It talks about, at the end, that he has no one to help him step down before him, waiting for the stirring of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down into the pool at appointed seasons and stirred up the water. The first one to go in after the water was stirred was healed of his disease. Now, that might create some confusion. You're like, man, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can trust this Bible. It's, there's, there, there's things that are being added, things being taken out. What, what's going on here? Well, some of the earliest translations of the Bible were translated with as much accuracy as they could be translated from some of the oldest manuscripts they could find at the time. The King James Version was translated um, into English hundreds of years ago, and the oldest manuscripts they had available in that day to translate this into English were from about 500 A.D. Well, since then, in the last several hundred years, archaeologists have been able to, to uncover and discover even older translations, older manuscripts, original manuscripts that had recorded what these passages say. And so in that, what they realized is that in the earliest manuscripts, this verse wasn't in there. So at some point over the course of a few hundred years, someone decided to add in verse 4. And there's a, there's a lot of different reasons why it could potentially have been added. I was reading this week, and it said that sometimes people would, as they would translate a manuscript from one language to another, they would make notes in the margin. And so sometimes those notes would fall into the hands of someone else years and years and years down the road, and they would see that note and assume it was part of the original text. And so they would add that in there. But I think what I want us to see is what's, what actually, um, there, there, was a, there was a misunderstanding of what was going on. Because if you really study verse 4, verse 4 doesn't, match up with the language that John uses as he writes the rest of the book of John. And some of you are like, Wes, I, you, you lost me already. Let's just, some of you are like, man, I love this. Like, you're geeking out with me for just a minute about some, some Bible things, Bible trivia. Why it's important is because it, it actually points to what maybe the people of this day understood was happening that wasn't really happening. You see, it says that there was an angel, and there's not a problem with angels in the Bible. We read about angels in the Bible, but it's interesting that that John later talks about the water being stirred, but he doesn't mention anything about an angel stirring the water. So I wonder if it was just a, a superstition. This is what some scholars believe. There was a superstition that an angel of the Lord would stir up this water. The water would begin to bubble, and so there's God's angels are there to begin healing people that can fall into the pool. Now, I don't know if that's true. It's not been confirmed that that's true, but that was an idea from back in that day. So even if that's not true, best case scenario, there was some superstition that people believed, if I could just find my way into the water, then I will be healed. And you see that taking place in this situation. You see this man, 
hoping that he'd be able to fall into the pool so that he could be healed. And I think it exposes something. We see what he believes to be true is not actually true. And so I think it's the first step that you and I have to take, the first choice we have to make if we want to be able to get back on our feet is we've got to silence the lies. We've got to be willing to, to push mute on some of the things that we listen to, some of the things that are influencing the way that we think, the way that we behave, the way that we interact with one another. You know, you will always become who you surround yourself with. And this man has been sitting here for 38 years with people who were stuck, people who were unhealthy, who were, who were struggling. And this isn't to cast judgment on this group of people, but they were all in need. And oftentimes when we're in need, we don't think clearly. And we're looking for any desperate measure to, to resolve our situation. And I think that's what's going on in this, in this scene. This man has been believing this lie for an incredibly long time. I mean, imagine the chaos. The, the pool begins to bubble up. And there's this race that takes place where everybody who uh, can possibly move is trying to get into the water. I mean, they're scheming together. They're, they're forming alliances with one another. It's like, man, hey, listen, let's team up. And if I can get in the water, then listen, I'll come back so that the next time the water starts to stir, I'll help you get in. And so then all of a sudden you have this, these teams forming. And so people are left out. Some people are included. I mean, it's just this total scene of chaos, all believing that if only they could get in there, then everything would be better and I would be free from what is holding me back. I think that's relevant for us. It's just this idea that I like to call Packaging. Sometimes we can see things and we believe that they are going to do this, but they only, only to find out later that they actually do something different. Several years ago, I remember walking through Sam's Club and I noticed a box of fruit snacks. Now, any box at Sam's Club is never a small box. So this was a large box of fruit snacks. And listen, I, I have an unhealthy relationship with sugar unhealthy relationship with candy. I don't know if anybody in here can relate with that. Um, that's one of the things I love about Thanksgiving is dessert. And so I saw this large box of fruit snacks. I said, man, I need that. And you know why I decided I need it? Because on the box, it had this big mark on it that said, made with real fruit juice. And I thought, oh man, those are healthy fruit snacks. Because <laughs> fruit comes from trees that grow up from the ground. I mean, this is, this is God's will for my life. Got home, started eating some of the fruit snacks, ended up eating all the fruit snacks. I might have shared a handful with my kids. But I turned over one of the packages one day and I looked at the back of it to look at the ingredients. And it was like 0.1% real fruit juice. And the rest of it was high fructose corn syrup and sugar. Nothing healthy about it at all, but man, they were good. But what I expected isn't what was real. And so what would this, consider that. Consider that type of thing in our lives. Let me give you some examples. One of them that I think in suburban Houston we can fall into is the pursuit of youth sports for our children and pushing our children to excel in football, basketball, baseball, and all the extracurricular activities. Maybe it's not sports, but it's something else. It's dance, it's cheer. And we, we run tirelessly, setting them up to succeed in whatever sport they choose. And I'll just pause right here because I know some of you are you're like, you're getting a little bit kind of triggered because you're like, he's, he's talking about me and he's wrong. Listen, I'm talking about me. Listen, when it comes to youth sports in my house, I'm all in. I mean, I, I love watching my boys compete. I want my boys to compete well. I want to set them up to compete well. And so listen, I'm, I'm not dogging youth sports, all right? I, I am one of you. But here's the problem. At some point, he or she 
regardless of how good they are today, they're not going to make a team. And it's in that day and in that moment when they don't make a team that they begin to consider everything that is important and everything that was a priority. And if we make youth sports the ultimate in our life and we devote all of our time and our energy and our resources to help our child succeed, then the day that they lose a spot on the team, whether it's in high school, in college, or they retire as a Hall of Famer in the NFL, there's going to be a day where it's going to be over. And the identity that we've built up for them comes crumbling down because that was the priority and all of a sudden what was, what was important is no longer available. And so listen, go all in with sports. Teach your kids discipline. Teach them what it looks like to excel and to be great in what they do and honor God in that. But don't do that at the expense or at the dismissal of who God created them to be and who God wants to be in their life and their identity that comes in him. You see, we fall for the label and fail to read the ingredients. Maybe that's not what it is for you. Maybe it's for you, you're single. And you don't want to be single. And listen, there's nothing wrong with being single. The Bible actually says that single people are better off, okay? And some of you are like, yes, that's true, amen. Don't, don't admit that out loud if your spouse is sitting next to you. But I know that some of you are in a place where you're like, man, I, I really desire to be in that relationship with the person I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with. And this time of year is like, it's, it's heightened because you just left Thanksgiving dinner with all of your extended family and the number one question they ask at Thanksgiving dinner and at Christmas is coming up is, so have you met anybody yet? And you want to respond with a punch in the throat? You're like, no, I haven't. But why do you keep bringing it up? Because I think about it enough without you bringing it up. So could you stop bringing it up? Because it's something that does control your mind. And you think and you believe that if you could just find that person, it would be great. When you wake up in the morning, everything is all about, well, how am I going to look? How am I going to live today? And maybe find that special someone. And then you get in the car and you're on your way to work. And that Tim McGraw, Faith Hill duet comes on. (laughs) And you're like, it's today's the day. This is a sign. You get on Instagram and all your friends are posting all their pictures with their significant other and you're like, oh man, this is good. And then even the dogs are walking two by two down the street. You're like, man, what in the world? Maybe, maybe today is the day. But here's the problem. When we live in that desperation, we'll often let our standards down and we'll lower the bar of who we want to be in that relationship with. And we begin to take on baggage and pain and hurt and dysfunction that we never wanted to begin with but because it becomes ultimate and we think that's what I need for the life that I want, we'll do whatever it takes to get that. And we believe the lie that we need someone in order to experience that. I mean, in suburban Houston, let's just talk, we talk about the race getting into the pool. I think we live in that race. We live in the race, the rat race as families, filling up our schedule, scheduling more than the 168 hours available to us every single week. We schedule in 200 hours, wearing ourselves out, trying to keep up with the expectations of what it looks like to live life a specific way in a certain way, because we think that's the life that we want, that's the life that we need, only to get down the road realizing that we didn't put the right energy and time and resources into the things that were most important, into the relationships with our kids, the relationships with our spouse, the relationship with the people down the street. You see, we, we believe some of these same lies. And it can put us into a place where we're sitting in a place of hopelessness around the pool of of Bethesda. I think it's important for us to see this. I think God wants us to recognize this in our lives today. Because you and I don't have to believe the lies of what the world says and what culture says because God has a word for us. Jesus showed up at the scene this day and he has a word for this man. He says, do you want to get well? And it's an opportunity to respond. It's an opportunity to change course. It's an opportunity to try something different. 
So we've got to silence the lies, and we've got to eliminate the excuses. You notice what he says. He says, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. The pool is his source of a miracle in his mind. But then he says, I don't have anybody to help me. Like, I'm too slow, man. Like, there's always somebody faster. There's always somebody stronger. There's always somebody with more friends. I just don't have what it takes. I'm not able to get into the pool. This is just the way that I am. He's, he's, he's reflecting back on who he is and who he's always been and what he's always done. And he's allowing that to dictate everything in the days ahead. You know, our past is powerful. It doesn't take much to bring it back to the forefront of our minds. A song on the radio or a a picture we see online, a memory that pops up on our phone. And it immediately takes us back to a, a time of maybe regret or a time where there was a missed opportunity that you didn't realize was the opportunity you realize it is today and you and you missed it. And so you, you kick yourself a little bit, thinking, man, what, what was I thinking? Why didn't I, why didn't I run after that more? And we begin to believe and concede that this is who I am, this is the way that I'll always be, and this is where I'll always be. There is no hope for my situation, and that's an incredibly destructive, discouraging place to be. But it feels impossible. Notice what happens? Notice Jesus doesn't show up. I mean, how cruel would this be if Jesus showed up on the scene with this man and he walks over to him and he goes, hey man, you've been here a long time and I don't know how much longer you're going to be here, but listen, I, why don't you just pray this prayer because I want to spend eternity with you in heaven one day. And so pray this prayer and then I'm going to leave and I'll see you when you get there. I mean, how, how cruel would that be? He doesn't, he doesn't say anything about a prayer. He just says, do you want to get well? It's the question for us, and this man begins to process these excuses. Maybe for you, you're like, man, I, I, I've tried this before, Wes, and I fell on my face. It's impossible. This is just who I am. Like, I was born this way. My, my dad was this way. My granddad was this way. My great-granddad was this way. They had anger issues. I have anger issues. It's just, just angry. It's just, it's just the way that it's going to be. Well, when you reflect back to the way that it was as a child? I mean, didn't that really suck? I mean, nobody, nobody wants that. So why would we allow that type of thing to be our excuse? It's a terrible excuse. Like, Wes, you don't know my situation. I don't. But I don't know everything about this man's situation, but we see something happen in this situation. You know, I think it's interesting that we often find it a lot easier to live in our excuses than doing what's necessary to be free. The excuses are familiar, they're comfortable. Judd Wilhite, a pastor in Las Vegas, I've used this quote several times over the last couple of years in different messages, but he says this, he says, sometimes a familiar captivity feels more comfortable than an unfamiliar freedom. Man, how, how true is that? We can become the kings and queens of excuses. I think it's important for us to maybe come awake to this idea that we don't have to let the our past sabotage our future. We have control over our past. We can keep it from controlling every single day in front of us. We see this happen in this passage. Now, I love what Jesus does. He steps onto the scene and he doesn't, he doesn't sit down and say, hey, you know what, like, man, unpack that for me. 
Like, help, help, me, help me process that with you. I, I want to better understand your situation. And man, let's set up, a, let's set up some more conversations. And, and, and there's times for that. There's times where, where, where we need that. But Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, listen, we're not going to sit here and talk about this because you've been sitting here for too long already. And he shows up on the scene. He says, I just need you to give me a straight answer and stop trying to talk yourself out of the miracle that God wants for you today. And look what he says in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. In other words, he was back on his feet. Jesus, in this situation, shows up with all authority over everything in this earth, on this, on this planet. He says, I am here to give you victory over everything in your life that's holding you back. He says, do you want to get well? Do you want that? Do you want to experience that? In other words, you don't have to live life like this anymore. This doesn't have to be the final destination for you as long as you're on this planet. And he doesn't say, now pray this magic prayer and everything's going to be okay. He says, no, instead, it's time to do something. It's time to move. It's time to walk. Not by yourself, but get up and walk and and follow me. He's saying, I want you to, to walk with me. So the third Maybe most important choice that you and I can make today, especially if you find yourself in a place where you just feel like you haven't been able to get up for a really, really long time, is take the difficult step. Would you be willing to take the difficult step? This man picks up his pallet and he begins to walk. He takes Jesus at his word and he does what Jesus says. He says, Jesus, if you say so, then I will. I mean, this could have been a ridiculous scene where he's like, man, Jesus, really? Like, I don't even know you and I'm not sure you know me, but... Of course I want to get well. Why are you even talking to me? Like, man, get out of here. But there was something in this moment that he recognized something unique about Jesus. And he took Jesus at his word, and he gets up, and he starts to walk. Who did he walk with? He walked with Jesus. But not only did he walk with Jesus, but remember, there were people walking by to do what? To go celebrate God's goodness. To celebrate God's power that's available to us. So he wasn't getting up to go walk on a journey and take a morning walk by himself. He was being invited into something with other people and with Jesus. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus is saying, get up. To this man, he says, get up. Do the one thing that you've not been willing to do up to this point in your life. It's difficult. It's scary. People might say something, but it's worth it. I don't know what that step is for you. But I know that God is calling every single one of us to take difficult steps, but specifically today, maybe some difficult steps that are necessary for your healing so that you can get back up on your feet. God does some of his greatest work when we step into some of the most uncomfortable things that he's calling us into. I realized this last night, yesterday, as I was thinking about this message, I'd already sent in my notes to the team here, and I'd already come up with a title, Back on Your Feet, and I realized that a year ago, I wasn't on my feet. And I still fall on my face, even some today. And, but a year ago, I was coming off of a, a week off of work. And usually the last couple of days of my time off was always starting to shift back to being back in the workplace and going back to work and doing all the things that I loved to do and that I felt equipped to do and um, spending time with the people that I loved to work with. And it was different though last year. It was like as the day got closer to go back to work, I became more and more discouraged, unhappy, grumpy, just kind of numb. Things just felt a little bit foggy. 
I talked to my wife about it a couple of days. I went to work and spent a couple of days there, and it was just, it was brutal. And it wasn't that anybody had done anything. I just, I, there was something wrong. There was something broken, and it wasn't visible to people. Actually, it probably was. I talked to my wife and took the step, the uncomfortable, vulnerable step of going to counseling. So I began to process, because there are times where that's needed and it's necessary for our healing. And in that process, realized that um, I was struggling with some pretty significant depression. So I had to schedule another appointment with a doctor so that I could talk about some medication. And I remember sitting in that doctor's office, and the nurse walked in, and she said, so why are you here today? And I, I, honestly, I wanted to make something up. Man, I've had this, this pain in my throat. Um, I just need to see a doctor. And I kind of paused for a minute because it, I didn't want to admit that that's what was wrong with me. Because I lived in the mindset up to that point that I just need to suck it up. I just need to keep going, put one foot in front of the other, and this is going to get better. You see the lies that we believe, especially as men? I mean, we're real good at insulating and isolating, just saying, hey, man, I'm going to push through this. Well, I had pushed through it for a long time and finally got to a place where I couldn't push anymore. I looked at the nurse and I said, I'm, I'm depressed. <laughs> That's all I said. She goes, okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. And long story short, I started taking medication. And I can look back a year, a year ago this week, and here I am teaching a message about back on your feet. And I'm not telling you that to say, hey, look at me. I'm the hero because I'm a work in progress. But I don't think I realized how much of a darkness I was living in until I started to come out of it. Yeah. But it took some really difficult steps before I began to experience some of that light again, some of that life, some of that energy, some of that breakthrough. Learning again what it was like to actually sleep at night. To begin to have healthy thoughts as I process things. What's that step for you? Is it, is it that? Is it to maybe step into some counseling? To talk to a professional who's skilled at helping you process things in a healthy context? Is it, is it maybe stepping into some sort of recovery program to begin to work through something that's maybe been controlling your life for, for years, maybe, maybe your entire life? Is it walking through a process of forgiveness? Is it, is it putting a stop to the end of an unhealthy dating pattern in your life, trying to find that perfect someone, and it's, it's drawing a line in the sand and saying, for the next year, I'm not going to do this anymore because I want to focus my attention and my affection on my God. And if God wants that for me, he will provide that for me. What is that step for you? Maybe it's just to simply trust Jesus. And I'm not talking about a simple prayer. There's a moment of confession where we recognize our need for Jesus, not just in eternity one day, but even today on this earth. But maybe the step for you to take is to say, I trust you, Jesus, and I want to follow you. I want to get up, and I want to move. Movement was necessary for the miracle to take place in this man's life. And I think oftentimes we sit and we wait for the miracle, but what if the miracle is waiting on you? I saw this on Instagram several months ago, and I, I haven't been able to forget thinking about it, but it said this, marriage is hard, divorce is hard. Choose your heart. Obesity is hard, staying fit is hard, choose your heart. Being in debt is hard, being financially disciplined is hard, choose your heart. I mean, you could add to that, Addiction is hard. Recovery is hard. Choose your heart. Being lonely is hard. 
Taking a step with courage to connect with other people in a healthy relationship is hard. Choose your heart. Losing the relationship with your kids because you've avoided the time with your kids is hard. Taking the steps necessary to maybe clear some space in your routine this week is hard. Choose your heart. Listen, life is hard. It will never be easy. But in Christ, you and I get to choose what's hard. And this man gets up and he picks up his pallet and he walks and he follows Jesus. Now, that's important because why did he pick up his pallet? I used to think, well, why did he need his pallet? He wasn't going to sit there anymore. I think it represents something. As he picked up his pallet, what he was saying is he's saying, I'm not coming back here. This isn't who I am anymore. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I'm moving on to something better and bigger and greater, and I don't know what it looks like yet, but this place is not for me anymore. And so he picks up his pallet. Why? Why? Because the pallet was probably something that was used as like a seat check. When he would go home at night to sleep and then come back the next day hoping for a miracle, he would leave his pallet there so no one would take his spot because he had, over the years, gotten closer and closer and closer to the water. But all of a sudden, he didn't need that anymore because he stopped believing the lies and he eliminated the excuses. And he says, this is not for me anymore. I'm moving on from here. There's power available in that. He had to leave some relationships behind. Unhealthy relationships, maybe, but he had to leave those behind. He had to leave what was familiar behind to step into something new. And I was thinking about this, I didn't even say this in the first service, and I was thinking about this as I was singing a minute ago. I wonder what this man thought down the road a little ways as he began to get to know this man named Jesus, the one that told him to get up and gave him the power to give up, get up, and then he watched that man Jesus go to the cross because that man Jesus loved him so much and was capable of living the life that he wasn't able to live, the life that you and I weren't able to live, and he did that, and then he chose the death that you and I deserved. And he was put into a tomb, and on the third day, he walked out of that borrowed tomb. And there was resurrection power that, that was on the scene that day, that took place that day, and here's why I tell you that, and here's, I, I can't imagine that this man wasn't overwhelmed with gratitude as he watched that take place and understood the full, full significance of it in his life. But that same resurrection power that Jesus walked out of that tomb with is the same power available to you and I, but you and I have to choose to stand up, to get up, to get back on our feet, and to walk. So let me leave you with this, because here's what I think this shows us. God's power connected to your willing heart will allow you to begin to live out your miracle story. God wants that for you and your marriage and your finances and your own life. God desires that, but the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? I want you to be free. God wants you to be free, why? Because when you're free, you'll be the best man, the best woman, the best husband, the best wife, the best son, daughter, coworker, boss, teammate. You'll be the best version of yourself but you've got to step into that freedom first. Are you willing? Because there will never be a better day than today to step into that, to get up, to want to get well. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want you to just reflect for a moment before you start putting all your things away and grab your keys. You're going to have like three minutes to grab your keys walking to your car. But I wonder what step God's calling you to take right now, this week, that's difficult, that's not easy, 
And maybe it's a step you've known you were supposed to take for years. Would you bring that step to the forefront of your mind? And then let's together pray that God would give us the courage and the boldness to take that step. That he would, that he would mess us up. He would keep us unsettled until we take that step. Can we pray that together? God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your words. I thank you for the truth. Most, mostly, I thank you for the power that's available to us because of what Jesus did so that we can have courage when we're scared, so that we can step into what's unfamiliar, believing that you will do what only you can do. And so we're trusting you for that. God, would you give us that courage this week? Would you give that to us today as we leave? The courage to have the conversation with somebody, the courage to, to, to make an appointment, the courage to throw something away, the courage to whatever it is, give us that courage and do what only you could do in us. And will we be more of who you want us to, to be in the days ahead because we've been obedient to you today. We trust you for that. We pray that what's happened here today wouldn't stay here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.